I have made a daring choice. To do what? I made a daring choice to bring over a sleeve of saltine crackers, but no water. Oh boy, that is a bold decision. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for December. December. First. First. Of 2019. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan, what are we here to do? Well, on this very special episode of Adequately Informed, we're here to discuss ideas, as we always do. If this is your first time joining us, welcome and thank you. But if not, you know that we are about bringing good faith discussion to the table, uncovering facts, and using those facts to inform our opinions. You know, our, our first run at a title was Real Time with Joe and Evan, but Bill Maher took that already. So, so yeah, good friend of the program, Bill Maher. Yeah, great friend of the program. <laughs> um, we are only human. We have our flaws. We don't know everything, but we like to think that we're adequately informed. So this episode's a bit of departure. Tell us how, Evan. Well, we record these things on Thursday night, but for the Thursday preceding the release of this episode, it was Thanksgiving, and Joe and I wanted to spend time with our families and loved ones, so we did not record on Thanksgiving. Instead, we we are recording this back-to-back with the previous week's episode, and so because of that... Oh, they don't. We, we should, they can't know that. <laughs> I, I never know what they can and can't know. It's you know, is it behind the scenes? Are we trying to keep the fourth wall up? It's always so hard, folks. Very hard. Very difficult. But because there's the delay between the recording and the broadcast, we want to do something that maybe isn't going to be as topical or time dependent. So we're going to start what might turn into a series of the decade in review as you are aware it is now the final month of the final year of this decade of the 2010s the last one where it's awkward before we can just go into saying the 20s again and so Mm. we're gonna we're gonna kind of recap some of the events and moments of this decade that have helped to define it yeah okay so i guess you've already tipped your hat but you're on my side of the decade debate. The decade ends in a month. Yeah. Not not after the next year. No. Because yeah. because I I was I was ready to get into a heated argument over this because it always feels so stupid to me. Like yes, you count up to 10 and after 10 starts the next set. But when we talk about time, like was 1920 the last year of the teens? No, it's it's socially constructed, right? I I remember they had this debate on the West Wing and yeah, sure. Of course, counting from year zero, it it doesn't add up. But when we socially think of decades, we know that the the third number is what determines the decade, the 1960s, the 2000s, the aughts, you know, so 
we're going to operate under the commonly accepted social definition of a decade and not a pedantic push the glasses up the nose definition of a decade. Because part of being adequately informed is sometimes not being pedantic. Yeah. Pedantic is fun sometimes, but you got to realize when you're being pedantic. Yeah. So anyway, it is the last, last month of the decade. Whoa, what a decade it's been, Evan. Oh, ooh-wee, it sure has been. So this episode, we're going to explore a bit more culture, right? Yeah. Because, you know, in any time frame, any decade, any period of time, there is so much you can look at. Oh, um, yeah. So we're, we're dividing it up. This one, we're looking at culture. Let, let's you, you got a starter for us, Evan? Yeah. Um, let's talk about music, a decade in music. And I've got some thoughts on it, but to be honest, I don't listen to as much new music as I used to. I don't typically listen to many full albums, so I'm hoping that Joe can offer some more in-depth <laughs> perspective. I know that, that Joe has certain artists and, and records that he really gets into, but yeah. I'm going to I find one and then I listen to it incessantly. <laughs> so I've just got four artists that I want to spotlight from the decade, and Joe can hop in, add his own thoughts, and contribute new artists to consider. But mm. the first artist that I would like to suggest that had a profound influence on me in this decade is going to be Daft Punk. And mm. specifically the song that they recorded with Pharrell Williams, Get Lucky. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy who's going to go for the deep cuts, unless it's the Beatles, but this is about the end of the decade, not, not an Evan Beatles rant. Yeah. So, I, 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 I... Go ahead. For me, Random Access Memories is right up there with maybe Album of the Decade. All right, or cool. At, at least personal album of the decade. I listen to it so much, so much. And I'll still occasionally listen to it. And it still just feels as fresh, as innovative, as out there as it's always has. And it's just fun to listen to. Yeah, wow. so I'm familiar with some of the other songs from Random Access Memories, but I really want to spotlight Get Lucky because I think it's such a uniquely brilliant song and it affects me emotionally in a way and i think the way that it is able to do this is through its compression of time and let me explain what i mean by that you've got this guitar riff and general feel that's pulled straight from the 1970s you've got sort of more techno-y production that feels like it's from the 1980s. You've got the daft punkness of it all, which to me recalls the 1990s. And then you've got Pharrell Williams' voice, who has been a vocalist on a number of the biggest hits of the 2000s and then the teens. And so you have one piece of music that compresses 40 years of popular music into one undeniably catchy package. And what that does to me, what, what the feelings it evokes in me, is that the past is not so far away from us. And that's a really comforting feeling. 
because it also makes us feel like the future is not far away from us. That the impermanence of time is merely a construct, and that as this music lives on years later, maybe we too will live on in perpetuity. And I know that that might be, for some of you, a big stretch for one disco pop throwback song, but that's how I feel when I listen to Get Lucky. And that, to me, is more than I can say about almost any other song of this decade. I mean, hell, they, they talk a lot about uh, the, the a lot of the album is about like the past, then the future. I mean, they have a whole song uh, about uh, uh, Giovanni Morador called yeah, yeah. Giorgio. And it starts off with an interview or a small monologue by the guy who started, I mean, was one of the first people who started techno and, mm-hmm. um, and bringing him to the future. And he's like, I just knew I needed the click on the eight track. And I knew I was set. And then it just goes into the whole fucking song. Oh man, that, you know, the, the interview was, or the little monologue was great. Apparently there were stories that when they recorded that monologue, they surrounded him with like, 20 microphones to get one crazy all-encompassing uh take of the sound like some of the stuff that they did in this was really crazy um get lucky i mean i remember at the i my my thoughts have kind of waned on this because it's not as fresh on the mind but i remember get lucky i always thought it was like the best track but it, it, it kind of outstayed as welcome because of how much it was on the radio and everything. Like I was like, yeah, it's the best song on the, tr- on the, on the record, but, Oh, it's played so much. Um, I really loved, uh, beyond on it. Um, which is the track after get lucky. Um, doing it right was such a fun song. Lose yourself to dance also, uh, with a Pharrell. Um, just, just such a fun album. So, so good. It's great. And, and Evan, I deeply encourage you and everybody else to listen to it as a full album, listening it from front to back, because it definitely has a flow to it. It has a rhythm to it. It has its highs. It has its lows. And all throughout the track list is very solid with great innovative music that just Sounds great. All right. Daft Punk definitely gets two thumbs up from the Adequately Informed podcast. Thank you for having a great decade. (laughs) Bye. We hope you've been adequately informed. (laughs) Next up, speaking of listening to full albums, one of the only people who I have listened to full albums of this year, and I'm going to be embarrassed by one of the albums that I haven't listened to, But of the albums that I have listened to, Kendrick Lamar has established himself as perhaps the most creative musical personality that is currently working. So I'm going to give big ups to Kendrick Lamar this decade. Oh, yeah. He put out, like, some of the best albums. I mean, he started off with uh, Section 80, uh, great, you know, starting album. I mean, you know, he had a mixtape before that, but uh, Section 80 was his first album. 
then came out with the Bombshell, uh, Good Kid, Mad City, an album I still listen to very regularly today. Um, then the cultural high point that was To Pimp a Butterfly was just just phenomenal. I listened to that so much. You know, it didn't have quite the bangers. It didn't quite have the staying power. You know, I mean, it has a cultural staying power within the music crew, but, you know, it, it you know, uh, people are still paying Backstreet Freestyle and Good Kid or uh, Mad City from Good Kid, Mad City. But nobody, you know, every once in a while you'll hear like King Kunta from uh, To Pimp a Butterfly. And then, then Damn, Damn was uh, his last album. It was still very good, but oh man, I mean, To Pimp a Butterfly just set, and uh, Good Kid, Mad City both set the bar so high that it was, you know, Damn didn't just quite reach it, but still undeniably one of the one of the most innovative artists of the the teens yeah so i believe that good kid mad city i guess that would be probably my pick for album of the decade and i think it's one of the finest albums that i've ever listened to i think that it's it's pretty remarkable in its thematic development because it starts off as this kind of vibrant and utterly poetic description of urban life before pivoting into a very personal reckoning with spirituality and it does so in a way that is smooth and consistent and very emotionally affecting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, Good Kid, Mad City is just such a great uh, storytelling album. The the uh, the rising the way through the streets, the influence that he had, or influences on him, um, that, it, it just strikes a chord. And you know, it's funny, people are giving, Kanye is having his turn to God these days trying to bask in that and they're like rappers don't talk about god kendrick lamar talks about god on like all of his damn albums like in to pimp a butterfly there's one song that was um barack obama's song of the year the year the album came out that was um how much a dollar cost it's a song about a homeless man who is god and, you know, passing over God, not giving him the dollar, you know, just the effect that has, how much a dollar really cost. And the, oh man, that, like, to me, To Pimp a Butterfly is, is top dog. Um, well, this but, is where I have to admit my shame to our listeners. I have still not listened to the entirety of To Pimp a Butterfly. It, there's nothing against it. I just, like I said, I, I'm not a big albums guy, and so I, I haven't gotten around to it. And yeah, yeah. I understand it's, you know, it created shockwaves within the culture and within the broader artistry of music. Mm-hmm. And so I've been meaning to get to it, but there you go, ladies and gentlemen. I'm sorry, I have not listened to, to Pimp a Butterfly yet. I mean, it's it, it has the single greatest punchline in any rap song. Life ain't shit but a fat vagina. 
Oh, it's funny. I love it. It's great. Well, maybe that's, maybe that's, that's sexist, that's but who knows? It's fun every time. Every time that whole King Kunta, I can sing along the whole thing. And every time I do, it gets me back in the groove. It <laughs> to pimp a butterfly is definitely going to be part of dad rap in the future <laughs> where um, young kids have to listen to the rap music that their dads like akin to dad rock of, uh, you know, kind of this current generation or a little bit uh, older. So, yeah, my kids are definitely going to be hearing the uh, dad play the old CD on <laughs> his uh, in his car of Tabimpa Butterfly. And then, damn, I have listened to, and I enjoy it. It's a good album, but I think you're right, Joe, when you say that it doesn't quite reach the highs of his earlier work. I think that Humble is, a, is an amazing track. I really enjoy that song. Definitely one of my favorite songs of the decade. And there's some other good stuff on there. Loyalty, Fear, but overall, not... Not as consistently excellent, but still, I got yeah, nothing yeah. but praise for Kendrick this decade. Yeah, with Damn, it was like after the... F- I listened to a lot for like the first month, and then I never really quite revisited it. That's kind of how I was with that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Kendrick, K-Dot, he's, uh, he's doing it right. Doing it right. Everybody will be dancing and be doing it right. Everybody will be dancing and be doing it right. We we combine the two. So Evan, what's what's your next one? So artist number three that I'm going to spotlight from this decade is Childish Gambino, otherwise known as Donald Glover, but he goes by the the stage name Childish Gambino, which he got from a Wu-Tang Clan name generator, which is still active online. You can search for it, and if you type in Donald Glover, it spits out Childish Gambino. Yeah. And, again, I haven't really listened to full albums, but I will say that Redbone is a song that I have listened to constantly ever since I first heard it. And then, more recently... This is America, and even more specifically, the music video to This is America was the most visceral and explosive music moment of the entire decade to me. Yeah, that 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 music video was something. I um, watched it without having any without having read anything yet. I watched it, you know, the the morning after the night that it was released and before all the think pieces had formally hit. And the moment when he, he fires the gun for the first time, it, it you know, chills a, a very physical response to what I'm seeing. It, it might be the densest piece of audiovisual rhetoric to come out in possibly ever, or at least not for a long time have we seen something to the extent of This Is America. It's a good song, but I think the music video really provides the full context. Yeah. Oh, man, definitely. Music videos of the past decade have been something else. Um, 
I would like to production quality, originality, all that fun stuff. I would like to make one more comment on Childish Gambino, and then I would really like you to explore because I know that analyzing music videos is something that you're very passionate about, and I think it would be interesting to hear. But I want to say that I think it's I like to think of Redbone and This Is America almost as companion pieces. In Redbone, he's warning us that something is coming. He's saying, stay woke, you know, be on the lookout. And then with This Is America, he drops this extraordinarily layered critique of modern society. And I think, I think it was foreshadowed either intentionally or unintentionally. All right, back to, back to music videos. You say that there's been, been developments and, and innovations. Can you tell us a little more about that? Well, uh, you know, I, I'm not, I, I really do enjoy music videos and I like them a lot. I don't, I, you know, I'm not like the religious watcher, but man, when I find one that I like, oh man, I just watch it over and over again. I just want to see every little piece that has to go into it. Now, it seemed like before um, going into this decade that, you know, a lot of um, music videos, they, I don't know, it just kind of seemed like, oh, maybe, you know, we're in some kind of context that's kind of related to the story. We're just going to do some things. We're going to walk around. We're going to lip sync to the, the video. And, you know, it just seemed like music videos were more something that you did on the back end than a kind of guiding force into making, you know, it, it, instead of it being its own distinct artistic vision, at least as I saw, but it just seems like music videos have, you know, it's, it's a place where, I mean, maybe it's not the original artist who makes them, but man, they have their own artistry to them. Like, this is America. Like, every every shot in that music video, every, you know, the lighting, the the pace of it, it's, it's all to help. Yeah, it's, it's all helped to convey a message. Now, do we all completely know or are on the same page of what that message was? Um, no, but it's conveying something. It's not, he didn't make the song and then just kind of, Oh yeah, and I guess we'll make a music video for it. We'll we'll do something. We'll do something fun. We'll make a music video for it. There was oh man, I'm trying to think of some of the best music videos or or the ones that I enjoyed the most. Go through your YouTube uh, favorites real quick. Yeah, I'm doing that right now and it turns <laughs> out I don't favorite a lot of music videos because I just, you know, they just become, you know, something I think or, or just, you know, go in and out. Um, oh, here's one that was really good. It's for this artist. He's kind of underground. His name goes by the t- name Rich Brian. Um, when he first started off, he went on as Rich Chiga, but that was kind of a bad wordplay, and he decided to back down from it after he actually became an artist. And he made this music video and song called Dat Stick, and he's just this guy who was like 16 in Indonesia and he made the hardest motherfucking rap song of all time with a equally hard music video and he is now like an artist after that one um, music video 
and song blowing up just how raw how tough as nails it was let me see this is america i'm looking through my favorites right now on youtube oh man the um this isn't quite the same deal but bo burnham's um i can't handle this uh rant at the end of his special make happy oh man the audio with the visual it comes together to be something more than it ever was you know either part alone just so just so beautiful one one music video that um kind of saucy i really liked demi lovato's cool for the summer there was something about that video like you know there's lots of music videos out there that try to do the sexy thing but you know this there 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 always seems like it's just kind of like ah we'll wear some skimpy clothes do some kind of sexy things and then we'll we'll just call it a take this one ooh there seemed like there was intentionality behind it so <laughs> that's about what I'll say on that one and definitely one I've been watching a lot recently end of the year so whatever's last is on my mind but I have been watching um the music video to 2099 by Charlie XCX this weird kind of slow motion but sped up you know it's just on jet skis but it's just so artistic so crisp so clear that it just it gets me. I, I enjoy a music video that has intentional, very intentional artistic direction and aids the song instead of just being a mere second banana, just kind of, ah, this goes with the music. It's accompanying it. I love projects where it is a full second artistic um, vision. So... That's 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 music videos from Joe. Yeah, neat. I I like the This Is America video, and other than that, I don't have strong opinions on music videos. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to spotlight one last artist from this decade. And Joe, I have a fear that I might lose you a little bit here, but that's okay. Yeah, we, we aren't going to be lockstep in everything. Yeah, but the final artist, and perhaps the one that means the absolute most to me, is Brandy Carlisle. Hmm, I don't even, I'm not even sure if I'm familiar with them. Well, she hasn't really had any big radio hits, not at least in the general format, but... Her work has been acclaimed for many years. Her career started before this decade, and her most popular song was The Story, which is also a beautiful song. And she did some work in roots music and really wanted to focus on her vocal craft. She's a fantastic vocalist, as well as playing multiple instruments. And then in... I want to say it was 2017, but I will double check so I am not incorrect. Okay, it was uh, 2018, early 2018, 
she released her album, By the Way, I Forgive You, and this included her song, The Joke. And I didn't really hear about it when it first came out, but then the Grammy nominees for that year were revealed, and, and all of a sudden The Joke was up for Song of the Year, or I think Record of the Year, one of the, one of the two big ones, and mm-hmm. a number of other smaller awards. And I listened to it, and I don't know if I've ever made a more immediate emotional connection with a piece of music. It is a, a, a song of affirmation for those who feel like there's no place for them in the modern world. For those who have been told that they are less and it's ultimately hopeful that these people from a number of different groups will find a happy ending. Mm-hmm. And it is so beautifully orchestrated, so passionately sung, and so lyrically gorgeous that I it, it moves me to tears anytime that I hear it. And for me, it is the song of the decade and one of the finest songs ever recorded in American popular music. And if you are not familiar with Brandy Carlisle, I would highly encourage you to look up her work. The joke is my favorite of her songs, but the entire, by the way, I forgive you album is solid. And she obviously has other work that predates the decade, but I, you know, on a short list with maybe like fire and rain, Hey Jude and the joke are, are sort of my idea of the most beautiful songs in the English language. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, since I hadn't heard of them, I, I guess I really don't have anything to add. Um, a little extension on the Brandy Carlisle thing, because in addition to her solo work this year in 2019, she assembled a supergroup of folk and country musicians known as the High Women, and they've released their album, which is also a very strong album, and a standout track, another song that has quickly become one of my favorites, is the song Crowded Table, which is a loving call to inclusion and community that my soul is aching for right now. And so between her solo work and her work orchestrating this fantastic group, which includes Marin Morris and other, you know, big name vocalists and instrumentalists in this group, I just think that for me, despite all of the great music, great music that we haven't even mentioned, I, I would be remiss if I did not point out that Brandy Carlisle is perhaps the best of them all in my estimation. All right, sorry. Mm-hmm. I, I've absolutely, you know, gone head over heels for this music within a very short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And now over to you, Joe. 
Yeah. So two more artists that I have really been following throughout this past decade. One is a one Dan Kroll. He is a pretty unknown artist. He is from Britain. I don't know him for the record. So yeah, he makes a kind of indie British pop music. Um, I think those are three words that describe his music and it's just been fun. I originally found him. He had a song that was included in Grand Theft Auto 5 and I found it through that and he has put out two albums. Um, one called uh, his first one called Sweet Disarray and uh, second one Emerging Adulthood. And they're both just fun, sonically creative, sonically fun. I mean, they're not super deep, but hey, it's just fun. I like it. Then the other artist I have been following through the decade was, um, as mentioned before, Charlie XCX. She, I first learned of her when she was in the song Fancy with uh, Iggy Azalea, which, aha, where did she go? But um, Charlie XCX... She sang the hook, you know, she sang the I'm so fancy part. So she has she had had boom her clap. Own cool. Yeah. Yeah. She had boom clap, which was uh, in the Fault in Our Stars movie and had, uh, you know, popularity on its own. But uh, let me pull up her Spotify page. Um, but she has been putting out work. Her first album, I mean, she put out like early in the decade. And then from then, she only put out like mixtapes, EPs, you know, not really um, putting out full fledged projects. And just recently, she put out a um, a self titled Charlie album. And it is like the future of pop music or like a dystopian version of future pop music. And it is very innovative very uh man just just creative great to listen to you know sometimes it's at fun sometimes it's deep sometimes you know it's just good music in my ears it it hits it it stings me i'm like wow this is good stuff i've been listening to it for the last couple months now um it's something that i've really enjoyed Enjoy seeing her come up as an actual pop artist to reach some sort of uh, notoriety in the world. So, though she's she's an artist that I've been following and will continue to follow because this, uh, you know, there there's been murmuring over time the potentiality of her work, um, trying to be something more innovative, more uh, future focused, uh, more experimental. And she really nailed the head on her album that came out this year, Charlie. So those are two artists that have, in addition to the one that, uh, you know, the ones that Evan mentioned uh, had a big impact on me. That's so interesting. Um, I guess I have never thought that way about Charlie XCX. I guess I've found some of those early tracks, I, I guess what I would call disposable but yeah, I, they, early on, they were very lackluster, uh, uh, some of her work, but there was always kind of a like kind of 
I mean, for some people, a feeling like in the back of their mind that there's kind of something more here or there could be something more here than just kind of generic pop. And she delivered. Well, I will definitely reconsider and reevaluate Charlie XCX given your glowing recommendation. I mean, her uh, album Charlie got a, a nine from Anthony Fantano, which is it's hard to obtain. So <laughs> he brought out the yellow flannel. If you if y'all are in the know, the best I teeth know. of the game. So, man, so, there you memes. go. Memes have been part of the decade. Yeah. The memes. So many memes. So many memes. For, first uh, mainstream cultural exploration of memes. I mean, before, you know, even without going into television or movies, man, the internet, the internet culture, that has been so big this decade. Yeah. You like any talk of... You want to speak to I that? Mean, That's more your domain than mine. I, you know. Yeah. Go, go off. Go ham. I mean... I mean, it seems like over the past couple of years here at the end of this decade, we have really seen internet-based content become more mainstream and more acceptable. Now, maybe because the uh, the nature of some of the content has become better, but um, there are definitely, you know, YouTube has been part of my a huge part of my uh, you know, media consumption diet uh, in the past decade. I've been watching for about 12 years now, so I've been all up in that. And through this decade, there have been lots of great creators who have come around. Like one of my favorites, the uh, you know, CGP Grey making great uh, informative videos, something I want to you know, be, you know, do something like that someday, a great inspiration for the work that I try to do and um, uh, another great one that has come around recently is um, over the last few years binging with Babish a guy who makes what I believe is just pure purely what the internet can be a high production value or you know high quality show where you make the silly foods that are found in television and other and television and movies and to me that's like a pure distillation of what the internet is just these somebody making great artistic videos based on something that you you know kind of in the back of your mind like yeah what does a Krabby Patty taste like <laughs> or um oh what are some of the other ones that he makes you know what what is the uh, Chris Traeger turkey burger taste like from Parks and Recreation Hot Ones with Sean Evans also feels like internet con, you know, pure internet content. Let's have an interview show, but they eat really spicy wings and they're working through it the whole time. Um, and I'm just, I'm still just kind of looking through uh, what else I have here. Video game donkey, you know, in the video game world, he's a guy who consistently gets multi-millions or multi-million view videos. Um, just a guy who is, you know, seems to be like a real quiet nerd. Um, but he has been able to, through the medium of YouTube, be able to turn that into a real cultural phenomenon in the video gaming world. That's big, a big part. And outside of YouTube, <laughs> the website Vox has had an enormous, 
enormous influence on me. I, re- I mean, I don't read a ton of them, but I listen to a good amount of their podcast. I love all of their YouTube videos, which is bringing it back to YouTube. Internet creativity has, has had its first real big go at it. Um, as, and it's becoming more legitimate as time goes on. And I can't wait to see where it goes. People always like to decry, oh, things are bad or they're going in the wrong direction. But, you know, this is where creativity lives. This is where, you know, the pure, raw imagination and creativity lives. That's how we're able um, to do what we do. That's, yep, this is what we're doing. The, the internet is still a flat, open space. Not everybody's going to make money at it, which people think is the marker to being able to do things. But if you can think of it and you can make it, you can put it out there. And if people like it, they can find it. So I, a big old ode to the internet and what, what internet content has achieved in the last decade. Yeah, it's been a truly seismic shift. And I'm not as much of the internet as Joe is. I prefer, in many cases, movies or physical books or things what, that... What uh, the internet people would call traditional media. Yeah. That's, that's more where I lie. But... Please hold for a change in audio quality due to our call dropping. Yeah, but I'm not trying to knock the internet. Uh, you know, I'm not. I might be an old fogey in my taste, but not in my ideology. And you can't deny the impact that it's had on people's lives. I worked at a high school last year and I had a great experience and a lot of great students. But trying to talk to them, I would, you know, say, oh, have you seen this movie? And that is just not really the language, the cultural language that they used to talk to each other when they would have their little inside jokes. It wasn't about movies or books. It was about vines that they saw. And oh, vine. Yeah. I even went this decade. Yeah. And it, it, it's just, it, it was, that was the moment when I realized everyone has a moment when they realize that you're not whatever it is, you're not it anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was when, when I learned that the the greatest cultural currency of these kids that I was coaching was Vine, and I was completely left out. So, yeah, Vine was innovative. TikTok, uh, you know, that's where I kind of get old, and I'm like, I don't quite get it. But um, it's well, what- uh, go ahead. Oh, I'm going to reveal myself as even more ignorant and, and compromise the whole facade of this show. Um, but but what's even the difference between Vine and TikTok? What is- so, so Vine had a very clear cut. Um, you had seven seconds or I think it was six. I can't remember. It was, it was something like that. Um, TikTok, you have, I think, up to like 30 seconds. And kind of the editing flow is a little bit different. So it ends up creating short content, but not as explosively short as TikTok. There's a little bit more wiggle room. 
So it's it's kind of it, it it's not as dramatically creative as what I thought Vine was, but I mean it see it seems to be something to you know people. So all right, fair enough. Yeah, and it, it and because every site kind of builds a culture, um, TikTok's culture has been different than what Vine was. So inherently the content is different. I mean, when you set up the rules differently, that also just changes what the content ends up being. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's a different game. I don't quite understand it as much or the meta or the nuances, but hey, it's something people are doing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we'll, we'll talk at the end of uh, the, the, uh, the next decade about <laughs> The ascendance of Vine to the chief, or of TikTok to the chief cultural medium <laughs> in the next decade. So yeah, that's uh, that's the Joe Internet rant. I love it. It's great. I can't wait for more. We're here, part well, of it. There, there, there will keep being more. You don't have to worry. Oh, I'm gonna worry, but there's no reason to worry. But I want to worry. Great content. So, Evan, where, where shall we steer this great cultural ship next? Oh, man. Let's talk about TV. Let's Television. talk about TV. We're in peak TV, right? There's so much content that unless it's your job, even people whose job it is to write about TV end up not watch, not watching all TV because... There's just too much of it, and they different publications have to divide up who watches what. Like, so, not even that there's just too much TV. There's too much good TV. Yeah. <laughs> and so I could, I could launch into a list of my personal favorite TV shows that have gone in this decade, and, and maybe it will devolve into that at some point. But for this segment, I want to do a little bit more to look at an outsider's list and then get some commentary from Joe and myself. And this might blow Mm -hmm. up in my face if we haven't seen enough of the shows, but you know, gosh, darn it. We're going to (laughs) try. So I'm looking at TV lines, best comedy series of the decade. And we're just going to go through them. They're listed alphabetically. We're going to provide commentary. Mm hmm. So first up is 30 Rock. Joe, thoughts on 30 Rock? Uh, I haven't watched it, but I've heard people like it. Okay. I watched all of 30 Rock recently, actually, this year. I binged the whole series, and it's good. I don't think that it's necessarily one of the, the best comedies I've ever seen, but it had a fantastic cast. I mean, Tina Fey, Alec Baldwin... Kenneth, what's that guy's name? Jack Brayer and Tracy Morgan, who I always call Tracy Jordan in real life now, too, and it, it's going to get me in trouble. And I'd say that there are definitely... It's in an age where we've kind of seen comedies be able to handle serialized arcs better, it's sort of jarring that 30 Rock really sucks at serialized arcs. The best they can come up with is that 
Jack gets a wife and then she gets kidnapped and brainwashed by the North Korean government. And it really just doesn't work. It's not very funny, but oh man, some of the individual bits are so funny. Werewolf Bar Mitzvah might be the most side-splitting throwaway joke in TV history. (laughs) And then they actually recorded the full song, which is also gold. Um, So I like 30 Rock, but I think that it hasn't quite risen to the same level in the zeitgeist as maybe some shows that were on the air at the same time. Mm -hmm. All right. Next up, Atlanta. Joe, thoughts on Atlanta? Haven't watched it. Okay. I like Atlanta. I think (laughs) that it takes a lot of interesting turns that comedies don't often take, and I think that it explores some harsh social realities. It experiments with surrealism. It gets very... It gets gets cringy at times, and sometimes it's very uncomfortable to watch when relationships are not going well, when the characters aren't communicating well. And then there's also the strange fact that the best episode of the series is not predominantly comedic. I'm speaking, of course, of Teddy Perkins, which is essentially a 25-minute horror short film that's executed perfectly and consists pretty much only of a heavily makeup Donald Glover and Lakeith Stanfield, but it's one of the best examples of how you can build atmosphere and suspense in a limited window of time. Teddy Perkins is fantastic. And the whole show is good. Obviously, there are, as with any comedy, especially one with a, a limited episode count as Atlanta, there are there are certain episodes that don't quite live up to the standards of the best of the show, but overall it's, it's solid and it's, it's always innovative and always interesting. Well, that's good. I've heard good things about the show, so maybe I'll watch it someday. Most likely not because there's so much, but I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not wanting to watch it. I'll take it. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Next up on the list is a show that viewers I keep calling them viewers. You're not seeing much, if anything, at this point. Maybe an ad on Spotify. But our listeners will know that we are very familiar with. And that's BoJack Horseman. BoJack Horseman makes the list of TV Line's top 10 TV comedies of the decade. So, Joe, (laughs) we've discussed the most recent season, but thoughts on BoJack as a whole? Oh, well, I I don't care for the rest of it. But the most recent season is... (laughs) Um, I stuck with it all the way through the end and was rewarded. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it has been a great show that is in the moment, you know, has been in the moment for the last, you know, however many years it's been on. Um, It feels very culturally relevant. It seems to hit upon themes that are, you know, have been desperately needed to be hit on that most mainstream television wasn't quite um, exploring and the real depth that Bojack has. So it has been a great show. I mean, and it's also funny, <laughs> you know, a lot of these comedies that really hit with the, uh, 
really came to be big hits in this decade and kind of hit with our kind of, uh, you know, uh, youngest millennial eldest Gen Zer uh, sensibility. You know, they, they say a lot of great stuff and you almost forget that they're comedies mm-hmm. <laughs> as well, making you laugh. So Yeah, that's what I really want to highlight because I think that so much has been said about the thematic depth and character development within BoJack Horseman, but it, I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that, yes, on an episode-to-episode level, it's just one of the funniest comedies around. I'm the type of person where... Even if I think something is funny, it takes a lot to get me to laugh, and very few shows make me laugh as much as BoJack Horseman. From really clever celebrity name-dropping, celebrity name puns, animal puns, tongue twisters, visual gags, just, you know, classic one-liners, there's there's always such a variety of humor, and the pacing is so quick that it just really all comes together. Yeah. It, you know, episodes of Bojack, you're almost like it. Wait a minute. Was this all in the same? Oh, wow. It was all in the same episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's one feature of this decade in television and in comedies is that it's, it, it's been found out that the comedies can have a message and they can explore darker, deeper themes almost better than straight dramas can, mm-hmm. because it's it's through, you know, it's it's like an ironic or sarcastic lens where it's like you're not actually truly interfacing it with it. You're kind of interfacing it with it as a joke, but then it's also serious. So that's one thing I have greatly enjoyed is how um, insightful and true to life some of these completely out there wacky comedies can be absolutely and and bojack is one of the best at it the next up is brooklyn 99 thoughts Good on show. brooklyn 99 it's fun i i think you like it a lot more than i do and i like it um it's just it's just fun it's pop it's not You know, it's not always super deep, but it's just a good time, at least to me. I enjoy it. I think it's very funny. I think it's got a fantastic ensemble. I don't think you can find a weak link in that entire ensemble. I know it was sort of billed as an Andy Samberg vehicle when it debuted around about 2013, but they've really fleshed out the rest of that cast and a very funny show that at times can get really deep. I think the Moo Moo episode is one of my favorite half hours of comedic television of the decade where Sergeant Jeffords, when he's off duty, gets racially profiled by another police officer. Because I think that with the discourse surrounding abuses within police departments, it's almost hard for some people to invest in a funny ragtag group of cops and Mumu confronted this head on and actually looked at the realities that would be facing these characters. And I think that episode won a lot of credibility for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a, a good episode again, where a comedy can explore real topics. Mm hmm. 
in a real way, but then also be funny. Yeah. It's, it's been great. It's been a great decade for comedy. We love Terry. He's made us laugh. He's talked about yogurt. And then to have that, those moments where he is just absolutely vulnerable, it really hits hard. Like in that show, you, you know, it's fun enough and you're close enough to the characters that you almost forget that race exists at that way in the world. And then they remind you and explore that. Um, it's a good time. You know what I remember about Brooklyn Nine-Nine and specifically your response to Brooklyn Nine-Nine was mm-hmm. how many times you watched the box episode with Sterling K. Brown. <laughs> yes, I watched that so many times. It's almost like a perfect piece of media for me. Just so it it's just good. It's it's uh, something that I like when television uh, shows do when they decide to really isolate on just uh, one or two of the characters of the show and really make it about them. And so in this one, it was uh, Andy Samberg's character and the chief. I you know I'm always horrible with names. Captain so Hull. yeah, Captain Holf. So they're just interrogating a person, uh, Sterling K. Brown, and just for the whole episode and it's great it's great play great acting between the two it's still funny uh, which you know we keep hitting on so good times yeah hopefully these shows on the best of the decade comedy series are going to be funny we hope yes definitely all right all let's right. move on next up community community was good i know you're a huge fan of that Community is my Massive favorite live-action sitcom. Yep. All right, next. <laughs> <laughs> Just uh, for some for some words on Community. Obviously, it either launched or continued a number of careers. Donald Glover, Allison Brie, Dan Harmon, and um, among others. And it's just... It, it works on so many levels for me. I think... Dan Harmon's brand of humanism comes through and there is such compassion shown to the characters. And that's something that I really value in media is being able to see moments of compassion. And then of course, for someone like me, who's tries to be a little pop culture sponge, all of the references and Abed's meta humor just lands so hard with me every time I because there's so much to watch I don't necessarily get around to re-watching stuff especially not TV but I've seen the entirety of Community I've well I'll put it this way I've seen every episode of Community at least three times and many episodes I've seen more than three times so it has a lot of rewatch value and to me, it is it's the best of, of network television. Yeah, I enjoyed watching it with you. All right. Good. Good show. <laughs> uh, we got up. another one. Yeah. How many, how many more are there? Uh, uh, we're halfway through halfway home. Halfway through. OK. All right. We'll pick up the pace. Crazy ex-girlfriend. I uh, didn't watch it. You're now familiar with Don't Be a Lawyer, though. Yep. Some some great individual musical numbers, very funny. Um, struggled to, I think, stay 
organic in its narrative construction. Good show, but probably around 30 rock level rather than community level. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. The Good Place. Also have not watched it. It is fantastic. It, it My favorite thing about The Good Place is that sitcoms thrive on formula, making sure that by the end of the episode, everything is the same. And The Good Place, from the end of the first season on, revels in constantly blowing up its own universe and rewriting the rules as it goes along. I think it's the most innovative sitcom that I've ever seen and also one of the funniest and like community, very compassionate towards its characters and very hopeful towards the very fate of humanity. All right. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have anything to say. Next up, happy endings. Oh, also I have not seen that. Oh, this was a really good one. ABC sitcom, one of the few sitcoms set in Chicago, and it just follows a group of adult friends it's it's a hangout sitcom it is it's it's created by uh david casp and he is someone who clearly understands all of the sitcom tropes really well and knows when to subvert them and when to lovingly play into them so happy Mm -hmm. endings is a show full of snappy dialogue fun characters zany scenarios it's just a good prime cut of sitcom that isn't on my absolute top tier, but is very enjoyable, full of memorable performances. Adam Pally, among others. Good deal. All right. Parks and Recreation. Um, I've watched a little bit of it. It's been fun. It has had a huge cultural impact. Absolutely. Um, for sure. It is definitely in the mainstream, uh, which makes me a little upset that I haven't seen most of it. But again, I also, yeah, you know, yeah, watching things. I can't. I can't watch everything when I'm watching the things I've already watched eight times. <laughs> uh, fantastic show, lovable characters, funny writing. I wish they were nicer to Jerry, but he does get a good arc in the end. Yeah, another one of my one of my favorite shows. Yeah, I mean, hell, the the character of Ron Swanson is like bigger than the show. <laughs> Yeah, like, that's our that's our U of I pride right there. Yeah, the pride. And of course, um, I have a renewed appreciation now that I live in Indiana. So, yeah. So, all, all right. right. Last last on the list is Veep. Veep. I also have not watched it. It's the first one on this list that I haven't watched, and when I have enough money to pay for HBO, I'll watch it. Hmm. All right. Well, that's comedy. Yeah, that's that's TV. <laughs> this uh, this was an experiment. You tell us if it worked. What what have been your favorite TV shows, comedy or otherwise, this decade? And uh, you know, music yeah. too. Every I'm asking the audience. You know, mm-hmm. um, let us know, please. Drop a comment, and uh, we'd love to hear what you think. Uh, definitely one that's been big for me this decade that um, hasn't. Uh, wasn't on the list was Archer. I've enjoyed watching that. It's gotten stale towards the end, but I've liked it. Um, I mean, I watched the first couple of seasons of Archer. I didn't hate it, but uh, I didn't, I didn't pursue it. Yeah. I mean, I liked it. Um, some of the, uh, 
the Rise of the docu-series has been real big in this past decade. Uh, so s- stuff like Making a Murderer had a huge cultural impact, um, and I watched it many times. The True Crime World, other, you know, just uh, Big Mouth, Big Mouth. Ah, I'm scrolling through a big list of TV content, so now <laughs> I'm getting more. But it's it's been nice because now that, you know, we don't have that TV is not strictly restricted to television and the format that, you know, is part of that, you know, there's more experimentation, uh, shorter shows, longer shows, episodes that are an hour and a half episodes that are, you know, shorter. So it's, it's been interesting to see how television isn't necessarily just the format that it came on. There are certain um, kind of uh, structural ideas of how the content is created and how it can survive in a world without the the strict you know format of television networks. So, yeah, yeah. Also, want to shout out Chernobyl. You know, recency effect, but oh fuck, oh fuck. Did, so that's television. Chernobyl. All right, cool. Uh, yeah. Um, I feel like that's, that's most TV conversations nowadays. Oh, I loved this. Oh, I didn't see it. But I loved this. Oh, I didn't see it. You know, we can go back and yeah. forth like that forever. Everyone in the yep. world. Yep. Yep. You know, it's like uh, that uh, funny video that was the opening to one of the Emmys where Andy Samberg hosted. And he he's at a dinner party and he's like, everybody's talking about all these different shows that they watched. And he's like, uh, 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 I haven't watched anything. And then he goes into a bunker and all he does with his life is watch television and yeah, finally year, gets caught yeah. up. <laughs> so that's what it feels like. It sure does. All right. And I'm going to guess we're going to go into movies. You want to do movies? You want to do books? What do you What do you want to do? Well, books. I mean, books are um, books have been all right. I don't have as much to say. I've done some reading over the years. Found out what I actually like to read, and then bought all the books for it, and then didn't read them. Um, <laughs> again, we just have so much content. How do we find any time to do it all? I don't know, but I've liked uh, The Broken Ladder by Keith Payne. That's been hugely influential, which you probably know if you are a dedicated listener. Thomas Piketty's Capital and Democracy for Realists by Aitchens and Bartels. Yeah. Big books. Those are big books. Uh, Big relevance in the social sciences for years to come. I definitely think... Democracy for Realists, unfortunately, started off the trend of for realist books. Oh, yeah. Rutger uh, Bregman's Utopia for Realists was good. We did a we sort of did a yeah. segment on that here. Yeah. So um, next up, I'm going to do um, fast food for realists. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be something. I would read that. But it. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, some for real fiction, good books. fiction. I don't know. I like Gillian Flynn. I liked uh, Sleeping Beauties by Stephen King. I, I don't um, have a definitive list in front of me. I've yeah. really, it's only been the last couple of years of this decade that I've picked up and trying to be a more avid reader. So I'm, I'm playing catch up here. Even worse two than books, TV. 
Two books that had a real big impact on me. Uh, one was Just Mercy, Just Mercy by Brian Stevens. Um, it's being turned into a movie now. Um, it's very good. Uh, re- reaffirms uh, some ideas that I had about morality. Gives me a language to talk about them and how we can just all be better people and be more just in society. And then another book that I've liked and have not adhered to, even though I loved its message, was uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport about how, you know, if you want to do knowledge work, you got to get rid of the distractions. You got to be concentrated. You got to get your mind into a space that allows you to think. And if, you know, you have everything pulling at you all the time, you ain't able to think. Or at least in a deep meaningful way that churns out new ideas and provides greater thinking to the world around you. All right. That's books. That's what we have to say about books. You know, I I wish I I had more to say. It wasn't produced in this past decade. I had to catch, like I said, I had to catch up. Yeah. We're, we're always catching up. And then I guess movies. Yeah. Movies. All right. I just want to talk about Evans creme de la creme. Three movies is all I want to talk about. Three movies that were really important to me this decade. And I'm actually starting work on a writing project that will encapsulate a fuller sphere of the movies that meant a lot this decade in the broader sense. Mm -hmm. But I just want to pick three movies that are very personal to me and that aren't necessarily representative of what cinema is or has been or can be but just three movies that matter to me. And the first of those is Bennett Miller's 2011 film Moneyball about the story of the Oakland athletics and their general manager, Billy Bean, who implemented sabermetric analysis into his player evaluations in order to compensate for a diminished budget being a small market team and how they used this new thinking to set the AL consecutive wins record, which was later broken by my Cleveland Indians way to go and make the playoffs even despite having a small budget. Mm -hmm. And everyone focuses on this sort of easy interpretation that it's about trying new things and not letting people who don't believe in you stop you. But that's not why the film means so much to me. If you follow the emotional journey of Billy Bean as portrayed by Brad Pitt, I think we can come to some profound insights about our culture, about the human condition, and about how American mythmaking can have profoundly negative consequences on our psyche. Billy Bean is driven to try these new sabermetric techniques because he wants to win. He wants to win so badly. In the film, baseball is presented as a metaphor for America. And Billy is really just attempting to follow the American dream, or because that concept is so nebulous, I have to clarify and say he's following a version of the American dream work Mm -hmm. hard, and win. And even though Billy has changed 
the fundamental way that players are evaluated in baseball, a thing that in the real world has completely revolutionized the industry because he can't win a World Series, he feels as though he's been a failure. He says throughout the movie, if you don't win the last game of the season, what does it matter? And so the movie, to me, isn't a triumph about how one man changed everything by working hard and following his own intuition. It's a tragedy about how one man changed everything by working hard and following his intuition and couldn't enjoy it because his culture inherently set him up for unhappiness. When we focus so much on the last game of the season, we devalue any successes that we have along the way. And this is something that I've really struggled with, especially as someone who competed at the top levels of speech and debate for several years. How do you define your own success in a culture that demands so much of us? Mm -hmm. And though Billy never wins the last game of the season, and to this day, he has not won a World Series as a front office member for the Oakland Athletics, I think sort of the unvocalized question of the movie is, even if Billy did win the last game of the season, the last game of the season, what would happen the next year? Because there's never, there might be a last game of a season, but there's never a last game. Our American ideology compels us to be better, but the engine that drives innovation at the same time stops us from enjoying the satisfaction that we gain from our achievements. And for a movie that most people enjoyed just on the level of it being a baseball movie or being a good film, the balanced comedy or drama, I think it has some of the most profound commentary on the American dream and its ability to perpetuate our own unhappiness of any film I've ever seen. And I deeply, deeply feel this movie. And it, it absolutely changed my outlook on life. Under Coming to all of these realizations has profoundly shaped the way that I interact with the world. That's good. It's, uh, it's always great when a piece of media is able to impact you in a way that like that makes you feel something and it, it makes me feel a lot i have seen the movie and i liked it a lot i don't have nearly as many words to say as evan so <laughs> but uh yeah i i definitely enjoyed it too my second film is from 2013 it is directed by joel and ethan cohen collectively known as the cohen brothers and it is inside lewin davis and i really like talking about Moneyball and Inside Lewin Davis back to back because I think that they have related but dissimilar themes in that my my short pitch on Inside Lewin Davis is that it's a movie about what it's like to be good in a world that demands greatness. Lewin Davis is a struggling folk musician 
But as portrayed by Oscar Isaac, we understand that he is clearly immensely talented. But because of factors both within and out of his control, he's struggling to really make a name for himself and stop just couch surfing with his friends in Greenwich Village. And eventually, to try and advance his career, he travels to Chicago and goes to the Gate of Horn Theater and auditions for the booking agent there. Lewin lays his soul bare with a deeply intimate performance, and the first comment out of the guy's mouth is, I don't see a lot of money in it. And that might be the single most devastating line delivery. The the club owner is played by F. Murray Abraham. And when he says that, after Lewin's beautiful performance, it just shatters everything that he has worked for, everything that he's built up in his head. And, and as all Coen Brothers films are, this is a really deeply textured film and there's a lot going on. And I'm, I'm sure there are alternative interpretations that are equally valid, but this is what I think of when I watch the film. Lewin is a fantastic folk performer, but because he's not commercial enough or because he doesn't have the right connections, he will be held back from what he truly wants. And I just think that it's it's another beautiful statement on how sometimes striving can create in us deep senses of dissatisfaction. And the other great thing is that about Inside Lewin Davis is that it's a classic Cohen's ending where Lewin makes it back and plays his another show at his local club, The Gaslight, but he gets beaten up for something that he did while he was drunk. And it's happy in the sense that he's made it back. He survived his ordeal and he's back where he belongs and he seems to have a more positive outlook. He's finally able to mourn the death of his friend, but also he gets beaten up. And another small detail that's really interesting is that at the show, while Lewin is exiting the stage, Bob Dylan comes on. And given the timeline of the film, we know that that show that Bob Dylan plays at the Gaslight when Bob Dylan gets discovered by the New York Times and sort of the, the entire folk scene changes in that moment. So we also know that folk music has just gotten big with Bob Dylan's performance and Lewin is not on that train. So it's a very, it's an ending where Lewin simultaneously reaffirms his commitment to music and is able to gain some sense of closure after the death of his friend, but is assaulted physically and his career is under assault as well. So it's it's a complex movie that I can empathize with on a personal level. Yeah. And I haven't seen it. So um, <laughs> I'm glad you have those feelings once again. All right. <laughs> All right, Evan. And uh, what's your third movie? The final movie that I want to showcase as of right now is a little bit more recent. 
It made its festival debut in 2017, but wasn't widely available to U.S. audiences until 2018. And that's Paul Schrader's First Reformed. First Reformed tells the story of a priest of a small congregation played by Ethan Hawke who experiences a huge crisis of faith when he a number of events happen to him. His son, who he encourages to be a prison chaplain, dies in the war. He is dealing with his own health issues, and a man in his congregation who he counsels commits suicide. This man is deeply, before he unfortunately ends his own life, he confides to Reverend Toller that he is deeply concerned about the state of the world, about how the pla- the planet will no longer be habitable for his children. And Reverend Toller expresses to him what he believes to be the essence of life itself, which is to hold both hope and despair in your mind at the same time. And I think about this so much on a societal level and a personal level. It feels as though there is so much negativity out in the world, so much that's happening that we feel isn't right. And it's so easy to get caught up in despair. And there's room for despair. We can't shut it out. As Reverend Toller says, that's the essence of life, is balancing the despair and the hope. And the entire film, in a number of ways, seeks to examine this codependent relationship between hope and despair. Now, I've been through some difficult times recently in my own life, and it has, has brought me to the brink of despair, especially in the last couple of years. And I've had crises of self-confidence, crises of faith. And when I went to see First Reformed, it told me a few things. It told me, one, it's okay to have these crises and you can think through them and attempt to make sense of this crazy chaotic world, as Reverend Toller does. And it also told me that there are some things in life that perhaps can't be definitively known, but that we must soldier on. That's that's sort of the crisis that, that Reverend Toller ends up going through. Either there is a loving, magnanimous creator waiting for us, or we are simply polluting a broken world until we die and the lights turn out. And there's really not a lot of of concrete evidence for either interpretation. And in understanding, again, this balance between hope and despair, I don't even think that it, 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 it solves our problems, but... It's, it's the best intellectualization of life that I've seen put on screen. 
And it's it's been uh, when I first saw this movie, I saw it four times in the two weeks that it ran at the art theater in Champaign. But it's been a little bit since I've seen it. So I I don't think I'm quite speaking with the clarity that I would like. But it is a movie that probes for the absolute deepest questions about existence. And although it does not offer any trite, concrete answers it's the dissection of the ideas and the thorough evaluation that has made it stick with me and has made me absolutely adore this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but you know, those are themes that uh, I, I've you know, interfaced with time to time. It's like, when do you, you know, at what point do you focus on exclusively the bad or do you focus on the good and acknowledge the bad or you know do you accept what you've done or do you have to keep striving for more is it good enough or is it never good enough is it all bad or is it all good you know is are you not being realistic if you're keeping with hope or are you um, being a downer when you only see the despair it's it's questions of the duality of emotions and um, ideas that, you know, yeah, the world's a whole lot of gray, and, but it's hard yeah, to operate um, in the gray. I'm spitballing here and I am not at all doing Paul Schrader's nuanced, thoughtful, insightful masterpiece justice. And if you are interested in getting the real deal instead of my sincere but shitty <laughs> write-up of it, please check out this film for yourself. Yeah. So, Joe, what, what movies have meant a lot to you this decade? <laughs> I have not watched nearly as many movies. My favorite movie that I've watched this decade was probably Thin Blue Line, but that came out in the 70s. <laughs> um, 80s, but yeah. Close, it, it's about the 70s, so that's where I got it from. Um yeah, there we go. Um, I was looking through some lists of movies that have come out in the decade, and I think some ones that were notable for me, um, I really liked. Turns out Inception, what came out this decade. 2010. Uh, yep, 2010. Started out with a bang and kind of set the course for what action movies would kind of be like for the coming decade. I don't know if it was that alone, but it definitely feels, you know, its influence has kept on. Let me see. What else came out this decade? I really like Spotlight. Yeah, Um, Spotlight's great. So is Inception, by the way. Yeah. In case anyone didn't know that I loved Inception. Yeah, it's a uh, good movie. Um, Sometimes it gets typecast of the kind of dude bro favorite movie, um, especially earlier in the decade or... uh, the, the nerd movie that everybody likes and they just like but it's the dude bro movie that stands up to scrutiny I don't yes. know yes yeah oh yeah it's a it's a good movie um, I'd never I'm, taken a film class when I saw it in 2010 in theaters and I loved it and I've since taken many film classes I still revisit it I still love it what is uh, David Fincher came out with this decade Gone Girl yeah Hmm. I don't think I saw that one. 
Oh wow, the Social Network, two thousand ten. Oh yeah, not not in my list, but but I'm just noticing that. Um, <laughs> Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I watched that not too long ago, and I really liked that. Never saw it, believe it or not. Yeah, that was a good one. So my my thoughts on movies haven't been nearly uh, um, as dynamic, and I haven't watched as many movies that came out this fucking decade as I thought. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of what else I've liked. I was not prepared for the segment, even though I should have. Oh, um, just of what I watched, I uh, not too long ago watched Fury with Brad Pitt and other company. That was a yeah, good movie. Shia yeah, Shia LaBeouf. That is a good movie. Like, I, I really enjoyed that. And I got turned on to it because I watched you watch like 10 minutes of it. And I thought <laughs> it was cool. And then I find it, found the, the full, I bought the full thing. So. Blu-ray or DVD? Oh, Blu-ray. Oh, yeah. You splurged. I definitely do. If, if, if I'm going to buy something, I'm going to uh, buy a Blu-ray because I definitely, I am someone who appreciates seeing the extra fidelity. Um. Man, I grew up watching like the the shittiest, grainiest VHS tapes on really old television sets. I I really do not have a problem if something is not in the highest, highest resolution or quality. I I just want to see the stories. I mean, I don't have a dislike of watching it in a shitty format, but if I have an option. I would uh, prefer to see it in fidelity, you know, in the highest fidelity possible. It gets my, it, it rustles my jimmies. Rubs your jimmies? Yeah. So let me see. Is there any other aspects of culture in the, in the, uh, the 2010s, the teens? Well, yes, but they would be farther and farther out of my wheelhouse. So. Yeah. Yeah. We've kind of talked about our wheel. House of Seas. So, I'm trying to think. Um, any big notable sports things, Evan? You like talking uh, about the Cubs? The Cubs won the World Series. That's going to be the story forevermore. All right. The 2016 World Series was the most gorgeous sporting event. And I think at this point, it would be very difficult to top it. Just a, a thrilling emotional perfect competition yeah it was good oh oh and one film that i i wanted to mention or two films um 21 and 22 jump street those were such fun comedies i think we were also at like the exact right age (laughs) and time in our lives to really get the most out of those movies I believe that was the first R-rated movie I ever saw that I didn't have to sneak into. Yeah. I have a feeling that it's going to be like when we grow up, when kind of our, you know, the dads of our generation, kids our age were shown like Animal House and dads thought that was like the height of comedy from when they were growing up. We're like, what? Ours is going to be 21 and 22 Jump Street. (laughs) Yeah, Animal House is still good. Yeah. I mean, 
I, 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 I can't remember if I've watched it all the way through. I mean, it just feels of a different era. And well, it is of a different era and and doesn't it, it won't speak to people who are much younger because they weren't there during that time period. And and 21 and 22 Jump Street definitely feel <laughs> they they will be dated. <laughs> they are very, <laughs> very much in uh, the culture at the time, not as super universal as things go, but. I still loved it nonetheless. Yeah, it's great. Great stuff. Again, like Evan said, I'm similar. Not too much actually makes me laugh super out loud. But boy, 21 and 22 Jump Street. They get me. And yeah, we're at like the right... Like how... I mean, we were in college when 22 Jump Street came out. So... Yeah, and in high school when 21 Jump Street came out. Yeah. Yeah. We were the perfect ages. <laughs> <laughs> we were that cohort cohort very so. select cohort and we did it we did it we were perfect nothing will ever top it <laughs> in that moment we were infinite so in this moment that is almost 5am for Evan and 4am for Joe I think we uh, I think we're uh, about to wrap this up Tell us your favorite movies of the decade. We'd love to hear. Tell us anything of your decade. Decades Comment or happen. email podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. And watch out. We'll have another episode that has been this decade in politics. Yeah, that one. I'll definitely that, take the lead on that one. Chill. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be a lot less chill. <laughs> yeah, it is not going to be fun and upbeat and hopeful as this one was so we'd like to thank you for listening again like evan said email us at podcast at adequately informed.com uh we'd like to thank anthony hish for the music any last closing thought i know we already kind of did this half a second ago but do it again thank you to paul schrader brandy carlisle donald glover and thank you jim whoever you are but anyway my name's joe hicks and mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed. Oh man, Halloween was last month. You missed it. Yeah, well, this is the ghost of Halloween. That comes in December. <laughs>